Well, it's never too late to have a dream. I mean, I'm always re-dreaming my dreams. So, you know, there'll be something else interesting I'm going to do in the future. I don't even know what it is yet. From the studio of Rule 29, I'm your host, Justin Ahrens. And I'm your co-host, Katie McConville, and this is Design Of. Katie, thank you so much for being with me today. I'm excited. Are you excited? Oh, I'm excited. Why don't you introduce who we're interviewing today? We are going to meet Larry Harper, the founder of the Good Tidings Foundation. He's worked so hard for everything that he's put together as far as his foundation, um, his history in the field of baseball, and he's had a little bit of luck along the way, but it's really his hard work that has made all the difference. And I can't wait to share with everyone how he's not only had an amazing journey, but he's helped uh, better the lives of thousands of kids and communities. Before we kind of dig into a little bit, so we met at an Alice Cooper golf tournament, right? Yeah, probably about 15 years ago. Yeah. And uh, I always saw this R29 next to some cool (laughs) graphics or cool something. And Alice always had these great themes for his golf tournament because he, as you might imagine, loves to dress in costumes. So he was up for anything. So you guys created some very cool visuals and uh, I always admired what you created and uh, but yeah it was about 15 years ago. I had the great pleasure of working with Alice and Cheryl Cooper for a number of years and have the ability to call them friends and I think it's been one of the highlights of my career helping Alice and Cheryl start their Solid Rock Foundation which is really focused on helping uh, endangered kids in the Phoenix Arizona area um, learn more about uh, the music industry, a uh, safe place to go, and get tutored in music. But also helping Alice put together these incredible events like his celebrity golf tournament and his concerts. But one of the greatest parts of that experience, other than working with such an incredible creative like Alice, was meeting some unforgettable people, Larry being one of them. As a side note, if you want to learn more about Alice, please listen to Design of Episode 4. But let's get back to Larry. We really want to start with what made him tick as a little guy. What do you think about that? Oh, I'm ready to learn more. Well, certainly baseball was my biggest influence. Um, I just kind of liked everything about it. You know, I got the, uh, I was very fortunate to grow up in Southern California in the 60s, um, a very innocent time back then, true, where there was still true middle class. And baseball and playing Little League Baseball was really, um, the coolest thing you know and sports back then were seasonal which they still should be but aren't unfortunately I think the pressures of doing things more often but you certainly look forward to that time you know that early springtime and baseball starting and then you know the Dodgers moved to the west coast uh, in the late 50s and um, they brought their announcer with them whose name was Vin Scully Vince Scully is considered one of the greatest sports commentators in history. Having called 67 seasons of baseball games for the Dodgers, he is best known for his lyrically and descriptive style and his trademark start of a broadcast. Hi, everybody, and a very pleasant Wednesday to you, wherever you may be. So every day I listen to Vince Scully on my transistor radio, and he he was just such a, he he had an amazing voice. It It was a truly impartial voice. He told you an honest story about someone, whether it was the opponent or a Dodger, you couldn't tell who he was rooting for. So I like that about, it was just a very positive story every single night. And so that that made a big impression on me, not just from a baseball standpoint, but just, you know, it was a a cool escape. You know, there there were no games really on TV then, maybe one, one once in a while. And I think young people, or we all could, benefit by listening to more things on a radio or a podcast or what have you because it does let your imagination I think uh, you know expand a little and dream a little so for me that was he was my biggest hero for sure you know and the fact that he could do that for 60 years with one company is pretty amazing what was baseball to you then well baseball was just the, the crisp white color of a baseball floating through the air, whether it was the pitcher throwing it or just playing catch or when the ball left your bat. Something about that I just still remember today. Um, because you didn't have a really nice baseball ever to play with until you had your Little League game. And your Little League game, you got one brand new ball. And I remember the start of those games when that first inning of that brand new ball, it was just like, you know, 
something so special about that. So that still rings true to me today is um, the sight of the ball traveling in the air with a dark green background. You know, I can still visually see that today. Last year of Little League Baseball, I made the all-star team, but I had these three interesting heroes. And I tell the story and people just think it's this the oddest thing, but for some reason, you know, obviously Ben Scully was already a big part of my life. Just, you know, this bigger than life man who spoke to me every night. Um, but I had two other people that I really kind of admired. I didn't know anything about them. And one was an artist named Leroy Neiman. Leroy Neiman was an American artist known for his brilliantly colored and expressionist paintings and screen prints of athletes, musicians, and sporting events. And I had bought a painting of his, or a poster of his, at the Rose Bowl Swap Meet in Pasadena. And it was of Sandy Koufax, great Dodger left-hander. And what I liked about Leroy Neiman was he painted um, so many different genres, a lot about sports, but he would use primary colors. You know, you didn't have to be an art critic to understand his work. It was very primary, very bright, but somehow he brought the image and the passion, the excitement and the motion of an athlete to life. And he was very relatable. So I had this poster above my bed I looked at every night of Sandy Koufax while listening to Vince Scully. And it was also a time that year, later that year, where our eighth grade class got a chance to go on a field trip to Warner Brothers Studios. And at the end of it, you know, we got to see a lot about music and movies and whatever Warner Brothers was doing. And we all got to go into the company store and buy an album. I had never bought an album before. Um, like vinyl, classic? Vinyl, classic okay. vinyl album. Didn't have a turntable. My parents had a turntable, you know, the big old console one that you'd listen to Frank Sinatra on or something. <laughs> so here, here I am and trying to buy my first album, trying to be cool because you can't let other kids know that you don't know anything about records. But the number one song that year was a song called School's Out. It's a great song. I knew nothing about really the group that played it. I knew it was Alice Cooper, so you know I bought the album. And took it home and opened it up. And the album was actually encased in this very cool album cover that was an old wooden school desk, but also had a pair of white paper panties in it, which, you know, for a 12-year-old boy, was like, whoa, what's, what's going on here? After this, Larry had an amazing eighth grade summer. His little league team got to one game away from going to Williamsport. Kitty, you know what's in Williamsport? Oh, that's the Little League World Series. Yeah, it was a big deal. But another incredible life lesson happened that summer that really defines the kind of worker that Larry is. Mostly I was a catcher. Okay. Yeah. Um, and it was a fun summer because I had a new bike because during that year um, at Sunny Slope Little League, they had a fundraiser. Every kid had to sell almond roca candy, which... What's almond roca? I don't know what that is. It's like a chocolate-covered nougat with peanuts it's okay a, it's is it a local thing or no it's it, it's around okay okay if you shop around you'll find it it's not the most common thing <laughs> but there was a package of 10 of them and they were a dollar and we'd sell them and um but whoever sold the most got a brand new schwinn 10-speed bicycle and back then schwinn was the bike to have you know if you had the stingray or now this one was their new 10-speed varsity you know it's the first time a bike company made a a bike for the general public that had 10 speeds and the, wow. the curl-down handlebar, you That's know. big time. Oh, it was big time. Yeah. And I really wanted that bike, and I thought, man, and, I, and so I just thought to myself, this is going to be simple. I will win the bike <laughs> if I go to more houses than any other kid, right? So it was very simple to me. I didn't think you didn't need any skill. You didn't need a fancy sales pitch. You know, back then, parents weren't taking this candy to their work and selling it for their kids. Right. You know, every kid kind of did their own thing. And so I went there, I, I did that every day after school and on the weekends, I just went to more houses. I went all over the mm -hmm. town next to me and I sold 456 boxes of almond roca. Now that sounds like a lot to me. Was that a lot? That's a lot because the next closest kid sold half that. 
second place. So I, I did win. Destroyed him. I, destroyed I did win, him, yeah. but I wanted to make sure of that. Yeah. So, but that was the first, one of the first times. Not only was I doing something good and raising money for the, the Sunny Slope Little League, but it was the first time, you know, I had a goal, and it was a reasonable goal. And you saw if you out-effort everyone else, what could possibly happen? For sure. Yeah. So he goes from being an all-star little league girl, one game away from the Little League World Series. Which is a huge deal. Huge. Yeah. And the next year, he gets cut from his freshman year baseball team. What? Yeah. No way. Yeah. And he realized he was a little bit out of shape. He wasn't ready. So his hard work drive kicked in. He worked his way through high school, bought a cool car, but he never tried out for baseball ever again. So he never played high school baseball. Right. He knew it was going to be a part of his life somehow later down the line. A couple years of junior college, and then he transferred. Wow. So I didn't want to go far away from home. So I went to Cal Poly Pomona. My dad had gone to Cal Poly San Luis Obispo. I heard the Cal Poly system was good. So that's where I went. And um, and enrolled there. And, and I thought, well, I'll just get a business degree, which was fine. You know, it's a broad enough degree. But it was the influences there. And the baseball coach there happened to be a really special person. His name was John Scalinas. And in Southern California, him and Rod Dato at USC, they were definitely the patriarchs of college baseball. Uh, Scalinas is in the baseball College Baseball Hall of Fame, won over a thousand games. But just an old Greek chiseled man, just could tell you this, these stories, just like the ultimate grandfather in some movie. So uh, I went out for the baseball team again. I didn't at Pasadena City College, so I went out for the baseball team. I didn't make the varsity, but they had a JV team that I played on, and I played on that my junior year. And um, but I went to all the varsity practices and helped out. And Coach Scalinas could see my passion for baseball. And so for my senior year, he said, "You know, you'd probably make the team, but you would never play. Uh, but how would you like to be a student assistant coach? We've never had one here." We'd love for you to, to join us. We see your passion. We think you can help throw batting practice, hit fungos, do whatever, you know, coach for space, do whatever we need. And I thought, yeah, this, this might be it. This might be some way I could do something in baseball that would last past into my adulthood. Mm. So I took that opportunity. So cool. Yeah. So my senior year, I was a student assistant coach at Cal Poly Pomona. With a legendary coach. Which a legendary coach and learned a lot. So it was really, really a great deal. Yeah. After this amazing experience, Katie, he, he just graduates with a business degree, and then he has to start adulting. He, yeah. he gets an entry-level job as a cost analysis. It's got to happen. That's right. And so I was a cost analyst, and you wore your coat and tie. Uh, I was in the basement, no windows. <laughs> working sounds at, awesome. <laughs> so it was tremendous. Worked a 10-key adding machine all day. Sit there in this 10-key adding machine, which I don't even know if they exist anymore. And you're just double checking facts, you know, fact checking costs. This company builds oil refineries. So you're just sitting there adding up numbers all day long. But I had a job. So I bought a brand new Z28 Camaro, a Ranger bass boat, and a condo with a buddy of mine from Sunny Slope Little League in the hills of LA. So now what year is this? So this is 1983. What color is your car? It's a white Z28 Camaro with a red stripe down the middle. And they just changed the style of the Camaro back then. It was pretty slick. Okay. So yeah, it was a big deal. You know, I had the Camaro, <laughs> bass boat, condo in LA. Um, you know, and, and, and you know, you thought, okay, this is how life's gonna go and so on and so on. But then um, after about six months of working that 10 key adding machine in the basement, it just wasn't that exciting, you know? And, and a buddy of mine who I'd played summer ball with, um, he was just a year younger than me, so I'm just a year out of college. And he's just a year younger than me. He's going to going into his senior year at Cal State LA, and he's a pretty good player. He's a pro prospect kind of level guy. And he said, uh, there's a new coach coming into Cal State LA, John Herbold, and he's looking for an assistant coach. And he's asked me, he's going to be the captain. He said, he asked me if I knew of any guys around looking to be an assistant coach and I gave him your name and he gave my name you know I'm one year as a student assistant and a below average cost analyst working a 10 key adding machine and he said you should come down and try it and I said man I'd love to you know baseball you know I still 
still thought I could do something in baseball, but had no idea what it would be. So I went to my parents and I told them, I'm selling the car, I'm selling the boat, I'm selling the condo back to my friend Ken, and I'm moving home, and I want to try this baseball thing out. And they were cool with it. I don't wow. think they did. They didn't say anything one way or the other. You know, um, they they obviously trusted in my ability to make a decision. So, um, so I became the assistant coach at Cal State LA for 1983-84 season, um, and. You know, I was well on my way to trying to figure out a career in baseball. So I started um, also working on my master's in education, knowing that to be a college coach at a higher level, you'd have to have a master's minimum to be hired. So I started on that. And then the following year, there was a little better opportunity at a small Christian college in Orange County. Um, it's called Vanguard University now. And it was an NAI school. They're now Division Three, um, and an assistant coach from Cal Poly had gotten the job named Dennis Rogers. And Dennis had had a really prolific um, kind of career as a player and then as a minor league instructor in professional baseball. And I thought, boy, I'd love to coach under him. And he took the job, and he gave me the pitching coach job there. And it was, I think, for two thousand dollars for the whole year. What? And yeah, you know, well, that's you know that's what that's what it is. So for nine months, you made two grand. It was a one-hour drive, but I still was living at home. Um, so you know, life was good. So practices start in the fall, and we're doing fall practices. And I'm the pitching coach, and it, and I realized this school has got five amazing pitchers at a school that no one's ever heard of. So. That part was really cool to try to develop these these young pitchers uh, that have a chance to really play after college. Um, so the last practice comes from the fall. It's the day before Thanksgiving, and they go to hand out the uniforms. Well, by this time, unfortunately, I'm about 260 pounds, really gained a lot of weight. And the biggest size they had was like a 44 chest, you know, and they handed the uniforms out, and they handed to me mine, the biggest one they had. So I just took it, so that's good enough. And we break for the Christmas break. This thing wouldn't have fit my leg. Wow. So, you know, I, I knew- How long did you have before you had to put that thing on? I had six weeks, seven weeks maybe. So I knew this was a make or break time in my life that even though it sounds silly, but if I was gonna have a career in baseball, I had to lose weight now. So, you know, I didn't want the weight to ruin, you know, I thought it ruined my dreams a little bit at the beginning of high school. And certainly now it would derail, because what am I gonna do, show up and... Yeah, jogging shoot. Yeah. yeah, yeah, what am I gonna do? So, so the next day, the day after Thanksgiving, I started a fairly unhealthy way of losing weight and just not eating very much at all. A lot of Diet Cokes, uh, some salad, you know, definitely a thousand calories or less for six, seven weeks. So we met back uh, mid-January to start the season. And I... Just really quick, that doesn't sound super healthy. <laughs> no, it doesn't sound super healthy. But back then, you're a young guy and you just say, I got to lose weight. I don't yeah, care. Yeah. I did two workouts a day. I, back then, there was a place... You yeah, starving all the time. I was. But I, I saw the end prize, you know. The end prize was, if I lose this weight, I'm a college coach, I'm fitting in a uniform, and my career keeps going, yeah. or it's over. I go back to the 10-key adding machine. So, um, so I did it. You know, I lost 60 pounds in 60 days. I showed up the first day back at school, and of course, people didn't really recognize me, but I was in the uniform. And it was very cool. Um, you know, it was, a, it, was a, it was also another kind of aha moment, like the 456 boxes of almond roca, the 60 pounds lost. It's, it's just another numbers game of things you have to do to, along the way in life. And we had a great season that spring. All five of the pitchers at this tiny school were drafted by Major League Baseball. 
and one of them, Tim Fortuno, played in the big leagues. So we had this really cool, it was a really cool opportunity as a young coach to coach that level of player. And at the end of that season, a small school that was similar to that out in Riverside, California, east of Los Angeles, about 50 miles, was reinstating their baseball program. They had dropped it a few years prior. Um, there were some indiscretions going on. So Cal Baptist College uh, was looking for a coach to reinstate baseball. And I, I put my resume in and I got called as a finalist for an interview. So I drive out to Riverside, it's another hour drive in a car east from my parents' house. And I show up and there's no baseball field, first of all. So we have the interview, it goes on and then he goes, let me show you where the field used to be. And he, they showed, okay. Now, the salary's $2,000. We have, have $2,000 to build a field and you have a thousand for dollars for uniforms and equipment. So $5,000 total budget all in for college baseball. I said, okay. So, so you took it? I took it. Wow. I took it and ran with it. Because now I'm a college head coach. Then there wasn't such a big deal about college strength of schedule. You're in Southern California. So before I get to the field part, I'm making the schedule up. And I schedule Arizona State, UCLA, University of San Diego, USC. I don't care if we get our brains beaten in. We have an opportunity to play with the big guys. And I felt before we get in our league, that would be the best thing to do. Plus, here I am coaching against these amazing schools. I yeah. thought, this is awesome. So the summer in Riverside is closer to Palm Springs than it is to LA. So it's out there desert-like. It's hot. It's hot. It's 100 degrees every day in the summer before school starting. So I got the job in May. I've got all summer to somehow build a field. So I befriended the local lumber yard who gave me all the wood to build two dugouts, a backstop, and some side fencing. So I went out every day in the summer. I had to dig nearly a couple hundred holes by hand with a post hole digger. Oh, that's the worst job. It's the worst job. And I thought I kind of knew what I was doing, and I kind of sort of did. So you dig these, and you put the 4x4 four four in and the concrete, and you put line up some plywood. And, but, you know, every time I did that, and, and I don't know who would take a job for $2,000 knowing they had to dig post holes all summer. <laughs> but I knew every time I took that post hole digger into the ground that I was a step closer to a better job in baseball. And now I think... I could either coach or scout in professional baseball. I think I think I can do it. So, you know, that was my motivation to get that field built to, um, you know, it had to get done. So we did it. Um, the first year went very well. We actually made the playoffs. Um, but halfway through that year, you know, and at that Christmas break, I wanted to go to the baseball winter meetings. They happened to be held in San Diego, and that's the annual get-together of every major league team and minor league team come together for four or five days. All the trades are made, where so guys are hired and fired, and free agents are signed. It's a big deal. So this is like, if you want to get hired for Major League Baseball. This would be a great opportunity. And this is before internships, before there were sports management degrees. You know, this is 1986-ish. So it's... You were an ex-player, you get hired as a coach. You get, you're an ex-player, you get hired as a scout. It's just the good old boy network re, returning. There was no young people in it like today where all these young GMs and young people running Major League Baseball. So I asked my parents, would they send me to San Diego, give me a hotel in San Diego for five days for my Christmas present? And they said, fine. So San Diego's a two-hour drive from my home in San, San Gabriel. They give me a room at the Vagabond Inn off Hotel Circle. Doesn't sound good. Doesn't sound good. Yeah, it doesn't sound good. But it was a typical motor lodge hotel, and uh, and I could see the hotel where all the big leaguers and all the people were staying at the Town and Country, which is on the other side of the freeway. So you know, I brought my typewriter. Um, I got some letters of recommendation from people I've met along the way, so I'm putting together little packets. So I kind of go over to the hotel, I scout it out, 
and how I'm going to meet these people that I don't really know. You know, and I had started the year before starting to send a few letters to major league teams. Hey, here I am. This is where I coach. I've met some of your scouts locally in Southern California. Do you have any openings for scouting um, or coaching? You know, and I'd start to get letters back of rejection, but I was getting letters back. To me, I thought that was cool. Yeah. You know, a major league team took the time to type a letter, sign it, put it in the mail back to me. So I kind of was keeping these letters. And, you know, now I have this database of names. Well, how am I going to find these people? So, um, you know, I, I kind of scouted out the, the hotel and saw that they were, they had this message system at the hotel where they'd leave phone messages on the outside of your hotel room. This is before you would leave the message digitally on your phone. They would actually drape the phone message over the door handle of your room. And when you got to your room, you just grab it and you'd read it. Well, while there was a big conference going on throughout the hotel, I went around to these rooms and basically hijacked the notes <laughs> that were on the doorknob. That's super creepy. Yeah. I didn't take them, okay. but I read the name of the people on the door knowing that this executive was staying in room 102. And so I made this roster of where I got almost everybody, at least one person from every team, I had a room number. I love how scrappy that is. <laughs> yeah, it's probably arrest worthy, but it worked out <laughs> great because no one else was doing it. It wasn't yeah. like there was a group of pariahs out there stealing right, notes. Right. So, so I had this little list of roster of, you know, I had a guy from the Astros and the Angels and the Giants. And, and so, the next, so the next day, I went to the... Um, hotel lobby um, house phone and I pick up the phone and the hotel operator answer and I'd say give me room 102 I want to talk to Ben Wade scouting director of the Dodgers oh sure hold on please so they would put me right through and I'd have this introduction and you know they were caught off guard some of them but two of them actually ended up meeting with me the Dodgers and the Royals invited me to their room and I got to meet with them, sit down, tell them my passion, my thoughts, you know. Um, you know, it was tough to convince somebody who did not play professional baseball to hire you back then. You know, that was a tough sell. How could I coach or scout if I never did it myself? That was still a little too progressive for people to think. All right, so how'd it go? Okay, so he had this experience and he didn't get the job. So he went back to coach another year. And in doing that, he also, the following year, went back to the winter meetings. All right. But this time, uh, they were in Dallas and farther away. So his parents could only afford to pay for the airfare. So you ready for this? Yeah. So Larry went with his typewriter again and basically slept in the lobby and the business centers. You're kidding. No. As he continued to try to connect with some major league contacts. But, you know, he had the same amount of luck, um, getting lots of rejection letters, but also at the same time getting closer and closer to building a network. So he decides this big moment uh, to resign as a coach with wow. no major league or future plans. But then, you know what? Uh, right around that time, his network really helped him make some interesting connections. I would spend, started spending a lot of time with the director of player personnel with the San Francisco Giants. He lived in Southern California. We were going to a lot of California Angel games. And um, he invited me to go to the World Series that year. First of all, how did you meet him? Just from this, being a college coach? Or? Yeah, being a college coach and all these letters just mm -hmm. finally. And he's taken a liking to me. And this is just the start of a lot of old-time scouts now. They're realizing... You know, it's, it's becoming a little bit more of a business or a younger person's game. And so these 75-year-old scouts, you know, how do we replace them? And um, we had some people that really liked me and recommended me. Um, also, Bob Fontaine, the Giants guy, they had a mutual respect for. So he was giving me a lot of time, a lot of interest. So as part of kind of a fourth interview, he invited me to go to the World Series game at Dodger Stadium against the Oakland A's. And this is the 1988 World Series. 
game one, Dodger Stadium, then Scully and my transistor. And so this is the game, if you're a baseball fan, when um, the Dodgers manager, Tommy Lasorda in the ninth inning, put up Kirk Gibson, pulled him out of the dugout, out of the scrap heap, he was injured. Yeah, I was gonna say he was hurt that game. He was hurt the game, had an MVP type year, but probably was not gonna play the whole World Series. But they took a gamble to bring him in to pinch hit off Dennis Eckersley, the best reliever in baseball. And he one hands a home run over the fence, miraculously. And from there, they just steamrolled the A's and won the World Series. Um, but I remember, um, you know, just listening to Vin Scully call that home run, um, you know, how the impossible has happened, is how he kind of captured it. High fly ball into right field. She is gone! In a year that has been so improbable, the impossible has happened. And so at the end of the game, Bob Fontaine and I, we went back to the, his hotel and we're continuing to interview. And he said, uh, well, kid, you want to join the Giants? And I thought that was an offer. And sure enough, it was, you know, and again, I, I still How remember. You? Well, just like Vin Scully said, the impossible has happened. Mm-hmm. You know, finally, five years, 150 letters of rejection kid that got cut from his freshman baseball team is now going to be scouting director of the Giants. I mean, scouting a scout for, in Southern California for the Giants. So that's how it happened. Uh, two weeks later, I signed a one-year contract to be the scout in Southern California, which is a great place to scout, a lot of great baseball. I'm assuming that contract was a little bit more than your baseball More than 2000 <laughs> It was $20,000. You, know. you must have felt rich at that point. Oh, at that point, I was, yeah, I was rolling in cash. And uh, so I got a studio apartment in Orange County, scouting baseball every day, just, you know, wake up and all you do is just baseball every day. He approached scouting like a business, typical Larry Katie. Uh, He started working the data, creating spreadsheets, and he made such an impression that just a year into being a scout, he became the head of scouting for the Giants baseball organization. That same time he met his wife through baseball and life was just great. Yeah, that's a good year. And then, and then this happened. So 1994, the World Series was canceled. I would have bet anything that would never happen. You know, there had to be a way that people, the players and the owners, could figure out a way to at least keep the World Series. But there was the owners and players had come to an impasse on contract and everything, and the World Series was canceled. And I, that really affected me. I thought, that would just have such a negative effect on kids because kids wouldn't understand why that would happen. Um, so I wanted to write a children's book to remind kids about base, what baseball was really all about. And that's all well and good. Um, but one, I need some images. And two, who's going to buy the thing from Larry Harper that nobody even knows who he is. So I'd recently seen an article in Sports Illustrated about these Norman Rockwell-esque paintings done by an artist, young artist named Brent Banger, happened to be in Pasadena. And so I tracked him down and I told him my thoughts. I want to create a book for children. We're going to give it all to charity, the money to charity if we raise any. Will you donate the images for us to use in your book, in the book? And he said, absolutely. And they were great images, kids sitting on the side of their bed listening to the radio, a boy playing catch with his dad in the front yard, very just wholesome, traditional, old-school baseball images. And so so we have the images. I write some poems to go with each image. Um, And now I don't know really what to do, this great idea. So I thought, well, we need some star power. wonder if I could get someone to get involved in the book, maybe write the foreword to kind of set the tone for the book. So I thought, well, I'll just write a letter to my childhood idol, Vin Scully. Now, I didn't know at the time Vin Scully is the most private person there is, super humble, never really allowed any documentation on his own life, a movie, or anything. He just just lets his work 
speak for itself. So I gave the, the, um, the letter to a friend of mine who was a coach for the Dodgers at the time, Mark Cressy. He took it, gave it to Vin Scully. Two days later, there's a voicemail on my answering machine, and it's Vin Scully saying, got your note, love to be a part of this, count me in. So my first thought is, how many friends do I have that can do an imitation of Vin Scully and leave me this crank call? But it was Vin himself, and he left me his home number. And I called it, and just one of those things that you just never thought something like this would happen. But he said, I'll write the foreword. It'll be about my childhood, about growing up, about how the radio impacted my entire life listening to baseball. And not only that, but I'll call my friend, the owner of the team, Peter O'Malley, and he will make sure this thing is produced, published, designed, all pro bono. Come on. Okay. So here we have it, and uh, it's called It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, kind of a play on my favorite time of year of Christmas, but yet baseball is the most wonderful time of the year for me. So uh, we go to get the book done and it's going to be done um, in you know December time of that 94 time frame and, and the Dodgers had been in first place at the time when the world's when the season was canceled so people in LA were hungry for baseball and there's this legendary bookstore in Pasadena near where I grew up called Vroman's bookstore and all the big people would do book signings there <clears throat> and I went to them I said would you sell the book for us and do a book signing. He says, well, we won't do a book signing for you, Larry Harper. But if you can get Vin Scully to show up, we will promote it and do it. So I asked Vin Scully, again, totally naive to him, probably not wanting to do it. And he said, yes, I'll come and do a book signing. So it's the day of the book signing. Um, I'm there and Brent Banger, the artist, is there. And some of our family and friends are there, but not many people. I'm a little nervous because Vin Scully's showing up in about 30 minutes. And and finally, you know, there's a few people start showing up like and how showing many up. How books do you have with you to sign? I, have, I brought 500 books. Wow, that's aggressive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, again, no clue in life yeah. is the way I go through it. So uh, Roman says, that's, that's nice. Why don't you just bring 20 in? Just brought a box of 20 and we'll get started. So I bring in a box of 20. And Vin Scully shows up and we go upstairs in a room, you know, just kind of waiting to get things started. We're talking. And I look out the back window of Romans from the second store story. And the line is now down the block, around the block, around the next block. And Romans comes, give me the keys to your car. We need all the books. Yeah, look who's not so stupid now, huh? <laughs> So we sold all 500 books at one book signing. It was their second biggest signing since um, Howard Stern's book came out. So it was a big deal. The book sold for 20 bucks. We raised 10 grand and we gave the money to different youth charities. Uh, one of which was Sunny Slope Little League and the Jackie Robinson Foundation and others. So we did a second edition of the book and now it's in its third edition to be benefit the Dodgers Dream Foundation. So it, it's been a fun project needless to say but from that and dealing with these charities you know I knew I wanted to be more of a missionary for children maybe out of the out of this book we could leapfrog into a charity and so my wife Ronnie and I were watching TV that that Christmas and there was the news reporter was talking about all these dear Santa letters were appearing in the San Francisco post office and back then, if you wrote a letter to a fictitious person, like Dear Easter Bunny, or Dear Elvis Presley, or Dear Jesus, or Dear Santa, you paid the money, it has to be delivered. So back then, certain regions were assigned certain people. Well, San Francisco that year happened to be the Santa right. headquarters. I didn't know any of this. Yeah. Now, nowadays, it goes to the nearest post office, but back then, each, each post office had to have their own, they called a dead letter pile, and San Francisco that year was Santa. So they did a story, all these piles, there was nothing to it, just all these letters to Santa were piling up and they showed a big picture. So my wife and I thought, 
Well, wouldn't that be interesting if we could cock them into getting some of the letters from the poorest zip codes in San Francisco? So we went down there and asked the postmaster that. Now, probably illegally, you know, shouldn't be handing out sealed mail to somebody. They agreed to do that. And they hand us, handed us out a few letters from East Palo Alto and Hunters Point and West Oakland. And we went home and we answered their wishes anonymously and sent those gifts to their home. And from that and the book, we knew we wanted to start a children's charity. Mm. So I uh, went through the process of starting a charity and have to pick a name. So I thought, well, Robin Hood Foundation sounds good because I'm good at raising money. We'll just take from the rich and give to the poor and life is good. <laughs> But that had already been taken by the Kennedy family in New York. That's so that was one, gone. Right? Yeah, that's a big deal. And then I thought, well, the St. Nick Foundation, that sounds cool because it's kind of, you know, holiday-ish and it's Christmas-ish. But that had been taken, and that's probably a good thing because the you know people might denote us as being religious affiliated and we're not, or I'd have to dress in a Santa suit all day or something. <laughs> that's a big Santa. Yeah. So then... Um, the Good Tidings Foundation came up in another kind of play on some common wording in a Christmas song, which has served us well because, you know, it's a very broad well-wishing of goodwill to children. And so in January of 1995, the Good Tidings Foundation was formed. We were just a Christmas toy charity back in the day. Um, and we just, you know, love to bring smiles on kids' faces during the holiday time. And after our second year, 1996, we did a party with the Golden State Warriors. And they wanted to um, bring all the players together for homeless children. And we supply the toys, and the players would hand them out. And we had this big party over at the Oakland Convention Center. And it worked out great. After the party, they asked, hey, do you want to build a basketball court with us? We've been wanting to do one in inner city Oakland. Would you like to do that? And I said, well, that sounds amazing. I know nothing about any of that, but I'm in. So that was Brookdale Park, and that was... By the way, you're building another thing about your baseball field. Yeah, exactly. It's so it, I figured, yeah, baseball field, basketball court's a shit cinch. So... Um, so we built the basketball court at Brookdale Park, and it was a park that a lot of NBA players had grown up playing on back in the day. And um, fast forward, we have to today, we've built nearly 100 courts with the Golden State Warriors, and then have done the same with the Giants and the A's and the Sharks and the Kings and and so on and so on. So those are like basketball courts, baseball fields, street hockey courts, wow. you name it. So. It's really served us well, kind of our niche of building things. And then through that, we've gone into art studios and music studios. So the art studio thing is quite interesting. Um, you know, kind of going to that childhood trifecta of my influential people. You know, Vin Scully helped start the charity. Um, when I was scouting director with the Giants, um, in 1989, the official artist of the World Series happened to be this guy named Leroy Neiman. So here I have a chance to meet my idol. Um, we became fast friends. And um, when it came time to start the charity, he was the first guy I called and donated lots of art. Very close friends. You know, I was a pallbearer at his funeral. And um, so it was a very, very unique opportunity. And now to honor him, we build a Leroy Neiman art studio in his name every year. And where does one of them happen to be? Oh at Alice Cooper's Solid Rock Foundation in Phoenix, Arizona. And that has another interesting story. When you know Good Tidings was in its infancy, we um, were down at Pebble Beach doing a little fundraiser, and the director of golf there, R.J. Harper, no relation, <clears throat> we were talking, and he had all these connections with all the celebrities that would come play at the AT&T Pebble Beach Pro-Am. And I thought, man, can I land one of these celebrities to help us when we get started? So I left a couple notes and business cards, didn't think much of it. Next week, phone rings, my wife and I are in bed, it's 10 o'clock at night. That's well, an odd time for a call, but I'll get up and answer it. And uh, I say hello, and he says, uh, is this Larry? I said, yes, this is Larry Harper. 
And hi, Larry, this is Alice. And so I'm thinking, okay, it's an awfully odd voice for a woman. Yeah. A little deep, a little off. <laughs> this is rusty. Little, yeah, a little rusty, yeah. a little old. But it's, it's Alice Cooper calling me, not knowing me, to offer his time and whatever he could do to help us when we're starting our charity. And, and at this point, it's just too much to handle, right? We've got Vin Scully in, Leroy Neiman's in, and now the third guy from my childhood, Alice Cooper, calls me without even knowing or meeting me to call to say, I heard your story, I want to help out, let's raise some money. And he jumped right in and we auctioned him off, I don't know how many dozens of times to play golf with Alice Cooper um, at Which, various by places. Way, people don't know this, not everyone knows this, Alice is a phenomenal golfer. Phenomenal golfer, you don't want to bet him, you'll, you'll, you'll owe him for yes. sure. And, you know, it's funny, you know, for people who don't know much about Alice Cooper or your perception of him is one way, whatever your perception is, flip that over, extremely giving, generous, Christian, straight-laced, wonderful man, and just an inspiration, which just even makes the story even better, you know, of these three young, three men who influenced me as my childhood now are so influential and so when he came around to start his charity a few years after mine the solid rock foundation as soon as i could pay him back and build that art studio for him and his amazing teen center in phoenix i was on board you appreciate this story but i don't think i've ever told anyone the story i'm at his house we're doing work for his charity right and he goes why don't you play golf because this is the second year of the golf tournament and i had not played and what's crazy, the first year, you know, that first year, he had such an amazing A-list. For people. sure. Like, a lot of my, um, you know, sports idols were there. And, like, I got to meet George Gervin and Eric Dickerson and all these. It was insane, right? He's like, I don't, I just don't play golf. I don't have golf clubs, whatever. So he goes, come here. We walk into his garage. We go to the back of his garage. He hands me a full set of Callaway. And he goes, now you got golf clubs. I'm like, Alice, I, I can't borrow these. He's like, no, I'm, I'm giving them to you. So I can't take these. He's like, and he goes, look, <laughs> he had a bunch of other bags. But he's just like, you need to start playing. Just take them. And I walked out of there with a full yeah. set of Cali golf. I mean, it was like, it was just really gracious. Yeah. Yeah, he just, he's, a, he's such a unique person. Um, a showman, for sure. Um, but you know, a lot of celebrities do charity work or they lend their name, or they show up, or they're fairly passionate, but this is truly someone who, from the ground up, wanted to create something special. And it's not easy to open a building and to house teenagers every day for free, give them art lessons and music lessons and a place to do homework and a place to be safe and not to be judged. Um, and him and his wife Cheryl are all in. It's really, I mean, we're so blessed to know them, my wife and I, and to help them, and, and it's, it's been great. So, you have a big year coming up. Yeah, yeah, this is our now 25th year of good tidings. Um, we are looking to big things because Rule 29 is now a partner of ours, so we know great things are going ahead of us. But it's it's a fun time. Um, you know, the one thing that sets our charity apart being unique is we do so many different things. We still do the holiday toy giving. Uh, we have a scholarship program. We build athletic fields and art studios. Um, but one thing we did early on is we put a lot of money away. We saved a lot of money, and we have a, a fairly decent endowment that will ensure this charity will go on forever. And that was a big part. So many charities don't live past their founder, the passion and what it takes for, you know, that their family put in to do the work. But that excites me. Um, so I want to start laying the groundwork for that. What is that? What will this look like to make sure, you know, more kids can be helped um, along the way and, and whatever it is. You know, our mission is to help children. And it could evolve. You know, athletics were a big part of what we did early on. And I'd say it still is, but I think we're looking at other opportunities for kids. Um, and mostly just to help their creative spirit, whether it be sports or art or computers or music, just to help them, 
you know, fulfill what's what's the dream in their mind and help kids of need, you know, give them, give them that a little extra boost of confidence to help them along the way. Well, you may not know this, but if you were to guess, how many kids' lives do you think you've impacted? Well, I mean, you can go to a basketball court any day and see dozens of kids playing on it. So you do that times 100, and then baseball fields, the same. And art studios that are in schools that are student bodies of a thousand. So it's it's tens of thousands. Um, you know, and it might be a small way or not, but definitely tens and tens of thousands of kids have touched what we've created or done. So that's pretty cool for really, for the most part, something my wife and I, along with the help of a few others and a great board, have done over 25 years. It's pretty cool. What are the odds of meeting your three childhood influences, becoming friends, and then working together? I mean, I think it's practically impossible. I know. Not only is Larry, his wife Ronnie, and the Good Tidings team changing lives, they have had an amazing journey along the way and have connected with some unbelievable people. But most importantly, they have impacted tens of thousands of kids' lives by doing over 200 projects, providing scholarships, and making the holidays brighter for thousands. Truly incredible. We just want to thank our larger-than-life friend, Larry Harper. Larry, your goal to help change and impact kids' lives is truly inspirational. We are excited to celebrate your 25th year, and we cannot wait to see what the next 25 years has in store. For more on Good Tidings, please go to their website, goodtidings.org. We would also like to thank Sleeping At Last for being the soundtrack to our show. For more on Ryan and his music, please go to sleepingatlast.com or search for Sleeping At Last wherever you get your music from. And to Design Of's audio engineer, my man Steve Wick. I really believe, Katie, he loved this episode so he could get back into one of his favorite movies, Major League. 100%. Wild thing! You make my heart sing! I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we did making it. Katie, thank you for joining me today. I loved it. If so, please give us a ranking on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast from. Tell others about our show and stay tuned for the next episode. Please follow us on Twitter at Design of Podcast and check out our site at rule29.com forward slash design of podcast. See you next episode.